Hello and welcome to DigFinVox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy this program, give us a like and subscribe and help the algorithms spread the word for more. My guest today is Navin Gupta, Managing Director for South Asia and Middle East at Ripple. The big question in international payments is, will we get to the point where we have real-time gross settlement for large volume cross-border flows? Ripple is one of many solutions out there trying to make this a reality, but can it happen? And which solution is the one that will ultimately prevail? Navin Gupta, welcome to DigFinVox. James, always great to be here and always great to meet you. We have known each other for many, many years. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Um, look, I wanted just to have our audience gets to know you a little bit better. We're gonna be talking about Ripple, Ripple Labs, XRP, real-time gross settlements, all that fun stuff. But first, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up being the, the, the managing director for Asia and EMEA. Sure, absolutely, right? So um, now I run Ripple for EMEA and South Asia, Middle East and Africa and South Asia. And I've been doing this role for five years. I built the uh, uh, the India business or the South Asia business, and now I've been running Middle East and Africa for a little bit over two years. Right? Before that, uh, I was building Uber for trucks in India. So that was my own company. I co-founded, um, did that for two years, decided to exit. And before that, in the payment space, 10 years at HSBC, I think that's where you and me met. I worked in Japan, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong, of course. And I also used to be on the board of this company called as National Payment Corporation of India, the one that invented UPI or IMPS or instant uh, payments for the domestic rails, right? And before that, almost five years at City in San Francisco, covering all the tech names of the West Coast. So my first client in my life was Google. And that time, 2002, Google wasn't such a big company as we know it today. And it, it, was, it was great because you learn from your customers. So that's my uh, both uh, corporate and entrepreneurial journey has been. The way I fell into the blockchain rabbit hole is, after I decided to exit uh, Uber for trucks in India, I was thinking, hey, what to do? And I always speak to people who I really uh, think that they can see five years, 10 years out, or they can see around the corners. And they told me that there are two things that are going to change the financial industry as we know it. One is uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning, put it in one bucket. And then the second is blockchain and cryptocurrencies, right? And blockchain and cryptocurrencies particularly was closer to my heart because of my payments background. And I decided to uh, go for Ripple. I also spoke with R3 and with um, Consensus, with Joe Lubin, um, and, and I got an offer from all three and decided to go with Ripple because that's the place I wanted to be. It was the closest yeah. to the payment payments industry, what my background was. Where, given your background as startup founder, banker, payment specialist, blockchain guy, where are, where are we today with, with global payments? What's happening? So what's happening in the group? So firstly, global payments are still fragmented, right? So that's the that's the sort of the nature of the beast itself, right? I mean, it's too huge for it to be cornered out in one single soup or something very, very quickly, right? But it's moving in that direction and it's moving in the direction in a number of ways. So one, today, Jim as an individual is intolerant of anything that is below instant, right? So you get instant payments in... In Hong Kong today, you get instant payments in the UK, you get instant payments in India, may it be an emerging economy or an advanced economy, right? 
The second thing that you are intolerant of is cross-border payments, right? So today, for example, if you were to I mean, use RippleNet or a number of other uh, parallel systems as well, your payment will get delivered almost instantly 24 7, 365 days a year, right? And people have built those plumbing already, and that's where the payment system is headed. But is it happening at scale for every single transaction, for every single corridor, every single country? The answer is no. And it's yeah. the scale or the growth phase where we are, and it's moving in that direction. One of the big issues with blockchain is because it really works when everybody's on the same platform, it's got that market level uh, superpower, but getting everybody on the same platform is super, super difficult, right? Adoption has been the biggest hurdle. Uh, so obviously you from the blockchain space today, but is blockchain the right way to go? Are there other alternatives that could achieve most of what you want to do without it? So I think the, the simple way to think about it would be blockchain is a good way to go or it's a great way to go. Would there be other alternates? Always, right? Because technologies have to compete with each other to get to James' wallet, right? So to say, hey, you know what? If I'm able to do it cheaper, faster, better, then I have a better right for James' business or HSBC's business or, or, or uh, a DBS's business versus anybody else. And that competition is good because it keeps everybody honest, right? So to, your, to answer your question, Today, as I, I, as I see, blockchain is the best way to essentially build this ecosystem out, right? Because what it doesn't do is it doesn't lock you into any kind of a proprietary interface, right? It gives you the visibility. It gives you the option both for decentralization and somewhat of centralization as well in terms of AML and KYC. So is it perfect? The answer is no. But is it perfect at this particular point? The answer is yes, right? And then the other thing that I like about blockchain is it has both the messaging and the value layer. So if you look at, for example, Swift or a lot of other systems, they would only have the messaging layer. That means they can only move the money, sorry, they can only move the information, but they can't move the underlying value. And blockchain does both. And it's the marriage of this two which makes blockchain prop, uh, powerful. And particularly, as you see stable coins evolving, right? Uh, you would essentially see the marriage to become a lot more stronger because today, one of the reasons the messaging and the value layer is different because, for example, the Fed system doesn't speak with the messaging system. But in this case, a USDC or a USDT, for example, I'm just taking it as an example, I'm not right. recommending either one of them, could have both the messaging and the value layer together, for example, when a US dollar moves from point A to point B. Does this come back then to the way that you've created the consensus mechanism at Ripple Labs uh, for, your, for, for, for Ripple Net and for the the currency that you use to, to I guess, you know, transfer yeah. that value, right, from, from one fiat to another fiat or from one bank to another across a border. Uh, you know, you're not like Bitcoin where you've got a, every node has a vote and therefore you've got high gas fees, um, high energy consumption and slow. On the other hand, uh, how decentralized is it and is that a problem for, for anybody who wants to use this? Yeah. So let's just understand this is a, in a little bit more granular fashion because I don't want to leave uh, your audience with some buzzwords and they don't, uh, they don't really understand what's happening in the background, right? So firstly, what RippleNet gives everybody who's there as a part of the network is optionality, right? So let's talk about what optionality I'm talking about. So firstly, they can just do messaging. So let's say uh, Jame is a financial institution, Naveen is a financial institution. We both can send messages to each other we can pre-validate transactions, we can communicate on the same security and technology standard. And it's like WhatsApp in some way, it's like 
um, lots of other messaging layers in some way where that that messaging layer itself is powerful because we can essentially just communicate between ourselves. We can communicate between three banks or three institutions tied to each other or six institutions tied to each other. But all of us have the same ledger, what we call it, right? But essentially same view of the transaction, like in WhatsApp, if we were to create a group, then all six will of us will essentially same, see the same message at the same time and nobody can temper with that message, right? And that itself is powerful, right? So that that's, that's one thing that we did. Now, then there is a set of institutions who are essentially saying, hey, you know what? We don't want to have these Nostro and Vostro accounts because we have very significant amount of liquidity that, that gets stuck there, right? And the reason this is important is because a lot of people ask, right, James, you, World Bank, UN, they always ask, why are remittance so expensive? Why do they cost 7% or 2%, 3%, whatever the total value of the principal that gets taken away? Because the large part of it is the liquidity cost. And what that liquidity cost is, the cost of maintaining those Nostro accounts and filling it up with millions of dollars in local currency. And because there you have the capital cost and you have the depreciation risks. So if you look at the Philippine peso, Indian rupee, Pakistani rupee, generally the trend is they depreciate towards compared to the dollar, right? So somebody has to have the depreciation risk hedge and hence it comes to the liquidity cost and hence the remittances are so expensive. So we have taken a sledgehammer and directly attacked that. We said, hey, you know what? You can just use a digital asset called as XRP as a bridge asset. You don't have to have exposure to it. So what would happen is, for example, GBP will get converted to XRP. XRP will get converted to Philippines peso. And because these are 24-7 markets, GBP to XRP trade is happening 24-7, 365 days a year. So is XRP to uh, Philippines peso trade happening 24-7, 365 days a year at regulated exchanges, you can essentially move value through it. And this is an optionality that exists. So people can say, hey, you know what? I'm happy with the messaging layer and I'll send money through my Nostro and Vostro accounts. I'm okay to keep millions of dollars at a local bank account in Philippines. And yes, that's expensive, but let, let the customer bear that cost. Or they could essentially say, yes, I will choose to eliminate it and hence really decrease the cost make the cost of liquidity almost zero and hence i have a better ability to serve my customers right so is there, a, is there an advantage that banks have, yeah and on that just while we're on that point is there an advantage that the banks have also to maintaining those accounts because i don't know there's a float or they can do something else that's you know accounts as deposits you know how would they be losing more than just i mean they'd be gaining something but would they also be losing something if they if, if they got rid of those accounts yeah. So it depends upon which side you are at. So if you're a sending institution, you're keeping those Nostro accounts. So for example, let's say it's a bank X in Hong Kong. It's keeping 10 million US dollars in Philippines at the local bank account. The, the money actually belongs to the depositors. The money actually belongs to the shareholders of that particular bank, assuming that they're they, they funding through funded through equity, right? So as a sending bank or a sending institution or a sending central bank country, you don't like the risk of billions of dollars essentially stuck in local currency, which today is prone to multiple other things, right? So ideally, as a sending institution, you would want that amount to be zero, right? But also at the same time, you don't want to reduce or remove the customer, customer comfort that comes with it in terms of being able to instantly settle, right? And a digital asset essentially allows you to do that. You can have zero um, uh, money tied in your Nostro and Vostro accounts, but also at the same time, settle 24 seven, 365 days a year, 12 o'clock in the night so that money can essentially move, right? But if you're a receiving institution, what you're saying is correct, right? The receiving institution used to have free float. Now that free float essentially would go away, but for the betterment of the overall system, because now the risk is lower, 
let's assume hypothetically, I'm taking an extreme example, you were Zimbabwe as a country or a Venezuela as a country, then you don't want those billions of dollars to be in the Nostra accounts because they are you are putting the depositors' money at risk uh, from the sending institution. Technology continues to evolve, Navin. Uh, how vital is it that a real-time gross settlement system, as you've described, relies on that bridge cryptocurrency, in your case, XRP? For example, Partyar has an atomic settlement capability, but no coin. Uh, are you is the business model at risk of being passed by, or is there something intrinsic to the way you designed it that you think uh, has has long term durability and and utility? Yeah. So to my mind, and you alluded to this earlier as well, there are two parts to the business model. So one part is product capability and making sure the best technology, the best security standard, the best network technology is being used while we are developing this, right? So that's one. And of course, it's transparent. Everybody can understand, and then they can say, hey, you know what we want. We, we, we would want to make sure that this is robust, right? And then the second part is the ecosystem, right? So how quickly you are able to increase the number of nodes, number of institutions who are essentially using it, right? And we are already in the second part, right? Because a telephone is not worth anything if only one person has a telephone. Now, if Jame and Naveen both have a telephone, it's of higher utility, but if 500 people have a telephone, then it is of much greater utility. So we are in that telephone exchange mode where X hundred institutions have already joined the network and those are increasing very, very quickly. And as that telephone exchange has got more uh, telephone connections, people are subscribing to it. That's the utility that it drives because like you rightly said earlier, if there is no adoption, doesn't matter, even the best technology is irrelevant, right? So to oh, us, yeah. that's what our that's what our moat is or that's what our claim would be. How, how much adoption do you need before you feel secure that RippleNet is here to stay? No, we are secure already. I don't think there is any question around that. But again, I've come to my original point, what we started with payments is a fragmented business. So I don't think globally, anybody in the world has got more than 1% by transaction volume in terms of market share, right? I mean, and this is, I'm talking about very, very big claims, right? So it will take some time for the consolidation to happen. And when I say consolidation is positively, right? For people to join the network, to be on the node. So the only network of significant scale, for example, at least in cross-border is Swift, but we all know Swift is outdated technology. For the newer technologies to take off, uh, it, it will take some time for that ecosystem to, to become bigger. If we see central bank digital currencies, a digital dollar, for example, will that have an impact on real-time gross settlements technology and how? what are the opportunities both from the business and from the user point of view? So to my mind, it will have an exceptional positive impact on the overall, the, the cross-border system, the way it works today, right? So what happens today is, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, right? So in terms of just explaining it to you, not against anything against banks, right? So today, Gene has a, a, a Bank of America account. He has a JP Morgan account. He has got a HSBC account. And his US dollars is essentially split in multiple places. So is mine, right? But let's assume there is a digital dollar, which you and me, we can put in our wallet, right? So in some way, all these accounts become irrelevant, right? And 12 o'clock in the night, you can essentially say, I can move my US dollar in one second to Naveen. The next second, Naveen can essentially move it to Jack. Jack can move to Ro, Ro can move to Anita, right? Now you suddenly have created two things. So one, you have essentially removed, let's call it artificial ownership or guardrails around the bank because of the bank accounts that we used to have at 10 other institutions. You essentially said, hey, you know what? this USDC or USDT or this 
Fed issued US dollar essentially belongs to me and it's on the blockchain and me as Jane own it and I can move it in one second anywhere around the world. The second thing that you're able to do is you're able to increase the velocity, right? So the, the dollar that used to turn around the system, say let's assume once a week, once a day, now can actually turn around 100 times a day, right? 5,000 times a day. Now, as we know through the Dell model, which originally came from, the higher the velocity in the system in terms of the turnover of money itself, the greater productivity that we can get and lower the working capital, right? So there'll be trillions and trillions of dollars of working capital that'll essentially come back to the balance sheet because now James or Naveen Inc. or Digfin LLC is able to use their dollar a lot more productive. And to my mind, that will be a big game changer for the global economy as a whole. We've been seeing a lot of uh, destruction in the, the crypto space uh, the past couple of weeks. We're seeing a lot of bad business models that are uh, chickens coming home to roost, I think, uh, in some of these uh, intertwined lending where it's, you know, Peter is picking Paul's pocket to pay Mary and, you know, it's very kind of circular. Uh, where do you guys stand in this in this imbroglio? And, and you know, when you see these problems happening, lenders and, and crypto hedge funds and so on hitting liquidity, liquidity being drained out of the system. Uh, you know, do you say, OK, this is this is clearing the way for us? Does it impact you negatively or, you know, what what does this mean? Yeah, I think two things it means. Right. So one regulation is necessary. Right. So let's be clear about it. Right. If there is billions of dollars at risk, either from investors, depositors or anybody else. Right. Doesn't matter whose money at risk. Right we should have clear regulation because that will pave way for responsible innovation to happen, right? Because otherwise the market will constantly swing between fear and greed, right? And both are not good for innovation. So in the case when there is greed, a lot of, let's say, susceptible business models essentially are able to evolve. And because, for example, Naveen and Jane, we are too greedy, we essentially kind of buy into the theories, right? And also other on the reverse side, if let's assume it, it's in complete fear, right? So say nobody wants to do anything, everybody's paralyzed, then innovations can't progress. But with, uh, but with active regulation, we are able to essentially have a better thing, right, going. So I think everybody recognizes that. Now we just need to see a path, how the regulations can essentially move forward, right? And then the second thing that I would also say is for people to be beware, right? I think now people do realize, and it happened during the dot-com time as well. If you look at 1999, 2000, I was in, uh, the West Coast living investors at that particular time. And there were many, many players like that and pets.com and lots of people who essentially did not have any business model. And like you rightly said, they were just moving a cap from one place to another. And I think there is a responsibility on market participants to essentially say, hey, we they never did their enough due diligence. A uh, lot of stress test is stressed that should have been done, um, have not been done. So hopefully with this, there will also be some of a market mechanism, right? I would assume, right? that somebody will essentially start a stress testing firm for a lot of algorithmic formulaic uh, uh, codes that are out there to essentially say, hey, are these codes auditable? If we were to stress test in X scenario, uh, would they essentially stand the test of their time, right? So there'll be some amount of market mechanism that will evolve as well because of this. Yeah. On the regulatory front, obviously every country has its own views, uh, its own level of progression. Uh, but do you have, at least in the, you know, the Asian, South Asian context, you have some overarching ideas of what constitutes good regulation or what you would like to see? Yeah, I think to my mind, a, a couple of things come to my mind, right? So first, that thing comes to my mind is 
where in countries where there is adequate dialogue between the market participants, market creators, or innovators, and the regulator. I think that is first thing is healthy because Naveen can still make mistakes, right? For example, if I'm proposing something, right? But assuming that there was no intent at the start to essentially fraud the system, then it's okay between the regulator and myself, we can build the innovation, maybe DeFi, maybe NFTs or whatever the platform is because the intent is not to harm anybody. And yes, that may be an outcome, but that only happened as a, as a, as a, as a side effect, but that wasn't the intent. And I think that dialogue creates the trust the dialogue creates, in some cases, sandboxes, for example, MAS in Singapore has it and some other countries have it as well, right? Now, as an output of that dialogue or the sandbox, there could be approvals that could be given and these could be sometimes to start with in some kind of a limited zone and then full licenses or full approvals can be given that can essentially get these countries to take on. So to my mind, this kind of approach, which starts with dialogue and the correct intent is the best way for to go forward. And as you know, we at Ripple have also always been a big proponent of that to make sure that it can be an active dialogue with the, with the regulators. And then we can essentially make sure that the good use cases can essentially progress. And stay. Yeah, but okay. So we talked about the process, but the actual ways that you would like to see the actual regulations fall in terms of either defining what it is you do or you know creating strictures around what you can and can't do. Are you seeing any use case, you know, sort of best practices or best scenarios emerging? So generally, I think uh, we are, I mean, just, I mean, you know that we are open and fans of MAS. I mean, they generally do a good job in terms of discussion, taking the views of the market participants. FCA in the UK is also a good and an open regulator, right? Where they hear from number of constituents and then essentially decide how to go about. And also one of the things that I personally really like about FCA is that the regulation is always proportionate, proportionate to the risk and the proportionate to, let's say, the cost it essentially brings on the market participants and the consumers, right? And that proportionality is very important as well, because otherwise you see these extreme decisions, which is not good for anybody. Maybe we can talk a little bit about bank adoption. Uh, let's stick to our, our region. Uh, I know over the years, I've, I've, I've spoken with a few of the, the banks that uh, say they're using you, but can you give us a sense of how has that relationship changed and you know, are they using you in different ways than before? Uh, is it evolving? Yeah, 100%, right? So firstly, almost majority of the banks, and I just want to be very open, are using uh, the messaging layer of the Ripple, right? Where they're essentially communicating with A and B in a super efficient manner, and that is scaling up, right? Banks are using us more and more across more corridors, right? So for example, they may start with corridor in India, then they say, hey, you know what? I want to use you in corridor in Pakistan, in Morocco, in, in lots in the US, and in multiple countries around the world. And there, primarily they were using Swift earlier and they start to use RippleNet because this essentially allows them in terms of standardized API capability between two institutions, right? Uh, most of the uh, customers who are using us for the, the second part, which is the liquidity part in which XRP is used as a bridge are regulated PSPs, right? Or FinTechs, uh, which are essentially using it because for them, cost of capital is prohibitive, right? So on an, on an average, sometimes the weighted average cost of capital back could be up to 30% for a FinTech versus for a bank, it tends to be almost zero because they have got huge amount of depositors. And then the last thing that I would say is having worked at the bank, two banks for the last 15 years, banks are inherently conservative, right? It will take them some time to get comfortable with digital assets, even though it is being passed on through the regulated exchanges, right? So 
Banks will take a little bit longer time in terms of adoption, but all of them are watching. So if you look at DBS, the bank in your region, um, they are already selling Bitcoin, Ethereum, and XRP to its customers. There are a lot of other discussions we are having with banks as well, who are saying essentially our customers want to buy digital assets and how do we participate. But has it come in terms of in an active form uh, on our platform? It hasn't as yet for the use of XRP as a bridge to transfer value. Uh, Ripple in the U.S. has been sort of in a long-running legal battle with the SEC. The SEC says that because you have some control over the issuance of XRP, therefore it's security. You guys say, no, we're not really in control of it. Um, is there a potential ramifications one way or the other of how this ends up being settled? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. The time will tell. That's the honest answer because it's been quite some time that the decision is with the courts currently. And, and of course, both sides are arguing their points of view, right? But what I would say is actually on the ground, there has been no difference to our business. In fact, our business is growing leaps and bounds. So like, for example, just in Q1, uh, Brad talk, talked about it, we have grown 8x uh, year on year. Um, the adoption is great. The institutions, particularly outside of the US, want this solution because their consumers need it, their companies need it. We are seeing a lot of traction across the world in terms of this building out nodes and real volume essentially flowing through the uh, through the nodes. We already are on a $15 billion run rate, right? And to my mind, that's amazing. And, and sky's the limit in terms of where we are headed from here. In the Asia region, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown, the markets where you'd like to see a little more traction? What's been, what have been the harder nuts to crack? So I think, I mean, markets where we are having a great traction, for example, I mean, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Philippines, Australia, Japan, all these markets, right? But I just want to be very open, right? To say one step is like we did with RippleNet to essentially have a foot into the door, right? And an institution starts, right? And, and generally they're conservative. So they'll start with uh, one corridor with us. Of course, most of the institutions serve uh, 50 to 100 corridors and then they scale up. So it's when they scale up, that's when there is a huge hockey stick essentially approach happens. When we just put the foot in the door, they first, for the first three to six months, they try things out. They make sure that the letter in the spirit of the of everything that is being done is, is proper, right? And then it essentially moves forward. So we are seeing great tractions in these, in these markets. And also, also our traction is sometimes tied to the regulatory state in, in, in these particular countries. So for example, China, which is a very large economy in a region, India, which is a very large economy in a region, still cryptos or digital assets are a no-go. But if ever these economies were to open up, then I think uh, it, it sky's the limit in terms of being able to move yeah. forward. Okay. So Navin, I, you know, when I use my uh, FPS system is what we call it in Hong Kong, but it's basically a faster payment system that many domestic markets now have these. Uh, literally, I go into my bank app, um, I input somebody's name or email address or phone number, and the money's bang. I mean, it shows up in their account. It's, su it's super amazing at the domestic level. Uh, for small remittances, I, there's many fintechs, you know, Wise I've used, for example, to send money overseas. Again, it's, you know, cheap, pretty good. Um, where, how long will it be before a corporate treasurer just sort of basically input somebody's email or a counterpart's uh, mobile number or, or corporate bank numbers, whatever, so one number, one address, and they hit the send button and it shows up in another company's uh, account within you know a couple of minutes. How, how far away are we from that? Yeah, so at the SME level, I don't think we are very far away, right? Because today 
when Jim make a decision at your personal level and the same decision you can make for Digfin very quickly, right? I mean, in terms of because it's a, it's a, it's a small scale industry where the behavior of the individual very quickly is permeating towards the SMEs itself, right? Now, and, and of course, because the person is the owner, he or she is the sole in charge, so they can make the decision for the company. And this is, of course, they're moving money from one bank account to another. So it's fully regulated and KYC'd uh, in terms of the movement of the money itself, right? I think for a larger corporate, it will take probably some time because larger corporate tend to be a little bit more conservative and they would have different layers of decision-making. And still, I would say, I mean, again, please don't mind my saying that, but if you look at the boards of large companies, they personally don't play in the digital space. They don't are not the first innovators in terms of at their personal level in terms of technology itself. So that's the reason larger companies will always be more conservative and it'll take a little bit more time for that adoption to happen. But otherwise, I mean, we still, I think on the, if I, if, and this is the example when I'm saying is B2B and we are thinking millions of dollars essentially getting transacted. But if you look at the B2C side of it, right? A business essentially paying uh, freelancers, for example, a business essentially doing small value payments for hundreds and thousands of people, that place will progress a lot more quickly. And this could be payroll, this could be uh, TikTok payments, for example, I'm, I'm just creators. My daughter is a creator on Instagram, for example. And all those will get essentially paid a lot more quickly, exactly the way you and me, we can pay our Okay, today. all right. Well, Ditchfin is actually owned by AMTD. So I do have a, a layer above me in terms of, uh, of, of money moving in and out. But, uh, uh, and, and that's been a great relationship. So I wanna just, last question is, uh, I guess it's June, 2022. Uh, if we speak again, let's say at the end of the calendar year or the early next year, what will have changed for you? So for us, the scale would have continued, right? So in terms of things that we talked about, 8x growth, 15 billion, you would see a much bigger number uh, at the end of the year because we are growing very, very fast. You would find a lot more nodes on the network. And what I want to say is normally this, though the network, the growth on the nodes on the network may be incremental, but their effect is step change because after a while you achieve critical mass or escape velocity, and then it essentially moves together very, very quickly. Right? So both are both are these two things that I'm very excited about. And then when we should be able to talk, I should be able to cite examples and take you through how that journey has been. Okay, so the goal is escape velocity uh, by uh, early next year. Navin Gupta, thank you for joining me on Dishfin Vox. Amazing to be with you. Thank you very much for having me.